sermon passage for this morning is John chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. We read this passage during our second reading. And contextually, you'll note that this passage uh, falls immediately after Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, the Pharisee who came to investigate Jesus. Several weeks ago, we studied the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and we noticed how Jesus plainly explained the need of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life in order that that person might be saved. And we noted how this would have come to as a surprise to someone like Nicodemus, who as a Pharisee had a deep sense of works righteousness and of being able to keep all of God's commandments. And now, in John chapter 4, we read about another encounter that Jesus had with a person. This is a person uh, who in many in that society in Jesus' day would have considered the very opposite of Nicodemus the Pharisee. We see in this passage that Jesus met a sinful Samaritan woman. Now these two polar opposites, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, are placed side by side in John's gospel to show us, loved ones, that everyone is in need of God's grace. And these two people also reveal the power of God's grace. Not just everyone is in need of it, but it also reveals the power of God's grace. As we noted, there is some evidence in John's gospel that Nicodemus did repent and believe. And there is also ample evidence that the Samaritan woman did as well. Now, James Montgomery Boyce, he writes, it is difficult to imagine a greater contrast between two people than the contrast between the important and sophisticated Nicodemus, this ruler of the Jews, and the simple Samaritan woman. And he lists here some contrasts. Nicodemus was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee. She belonged to no religious party. He was a politician. She had no status whatsoever. Nicodemus was a scholar. She was uneducated. He was highly moral. She was immoral. He had a name. She is nameless in this passage. Nicodemus was a man. She was a woman. Nicodemus came at night to protect his reputation. She, who had a bad reputation, came at noon. Nicodemus came seeking, but the woman was sought by Jesus. Such great contrasts, are they not? But the point of the stories, both of Nicodemus and of the Samaritan woman, is that they both needed the gospel. They both needed the gospel, and they were both welcomed to it by God. See, if Nicodemus is an example of the truth that no one can rise so high on their own so as to be above salvation, the Samaritan woman for us this morning is an example of the truth that no one can seek, sink so low, that no one is beyond the saving power of God. And that's what we see first in our passage this morning. We see that the Lord seeks 
the lost. Now we read in the opening verses of John chapter 4 that as a result of the growing popularity of Jesus, um, he was uh, drawing the wrong kind of attention from the religious leaders. Uh, We know that the religious leaders had already sent Nicodemus to investigate Jesus in order to see what he was all about. And now that more people were following Jesus than were following John the Baptist, uh, the religious leaders were becoming suspicious of Jesus all the more. And, um, you know, this was a problem. This was a problem because Jesus knew that his hour, um, his time, that hour that had been appointed by the Father uh, to be arrested and, and for Jesus to be condemned to die had not yet come. Uh, he still needed to do more signs and to train his disciples and to fulfill all that the Father required. And so to avoid further conflict with the religious leaders at this point in his ministry, we read that he left Judea. He left that geographical region that he was ministering in. And we read in verses 1 through 4 that when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Jesus left Judea and departed for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now there in verse 4 is a key word that I want us to focus on. The word had. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Why did Jesus go through Samaria? Well, we might say, of course he had to go through Samaria. Jesus was in Judea, just to the south, and he was on his way to Galilee in the north, and Samaria was in between the two points. And so the shortest route in that day was to go through Samaria. We might think about it as getting from our church to Riverside. The shortest distance is usually taking the 91, right? And that involves you having to pass through Corona. It's the same situation here. And and yet this is where we see the surprise because in Jesus' day, uh, Jewish people usually did not go through Samaria. There were three routes by which a Jew could travel north from Judea to Galilee. They could take the journey inland along the Jordan River. They could take the journey along the coast of the Mediterranean, or they could take the route that Jesus took, going through Samaria. But most Jews in Jesus' day chose to take those two other longer routes rather than going through Samaria in order to avoid contact with the Samaritans. The Jews, in fact, had a saying that if one met a Samaritan walking along the road, one should walk into the ditch in order to avoid contact even between the two shadows. They believed that any contact with Samaritans would make them morally and religiously unclean, and I'll explain why that's the case in in just a few minutes. And so then as we read our text, why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Loved ones, it's because he needed to meet the Samaritan woman at the well. See, in obedience to his father, 
He needed to meet this elect woman in order that she might hear the gospel, that she might then repent and believe, and she might then spread the good news of Jesus to all her neighbors throughout Samaria, as we read in this chapter. What we see here, friends, is no accident. This was a divinely ordained encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Jesus came into this world, into the world that was created through him in order to seek and to save the lost, and that's exactly what he did for this Samaritan woman. See, his divine mission is very very clearly displayed here in John chapter 4. It's actually very similar to the kind of divinely ordained encounter that we read about in the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the tax collector who was hated by all of his neighbors. We read the story in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. See there, friends, that verse shows the divine necessity of Jesus bringing salvation to Zacchaeus' home. This was not a random encounter. Continuing on at verse 6. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into uh, the house to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. See in this passage how Zacchaeus knew the social protocol. He knew that he was a sinner, and he knew that he had been rejected by his neighbors. And, and in his mind, he really thought that Jesus would never want to enter into his house. And that's why everyone was surprised. Even Zacchaeus was as surprised as the crowd when he heard Jesus say to him, I must stay at your house today. Jesus there assuring Zacchaeus and displaying to all those within the hearing of of his words that not only did he want to proclaim Zacchaeus forgiven, but he wanted to demonstrate how Zacchaeus had been received and welcomed by God. What we learn here, friends, through these two stories of the Samaritan woman and Zacchaeus as well, is that no one comes to faith by chance or or because of some random opportunity. All who come to faith, including you and I, they do so according to God's appointed means, at God's appointed time. The means and the time were ordained by God before creation. They were ordained in our election. And we see here how God calls his people in time and in space according to his sovereign 
plan. You think about the wondrous fact that God or ordered the events in that Samaritan woman's life such that she would be at that well at that time in order to meet Jesus. She wasn't seeking him. He was seeking her because we read that he came to seek and to save the lost. There's a wonderful hymn in our hymnal titled, I Sought the Lord and Afterward I Knew. And it's written from the perspective of a believer who, after he came to faith, uh, realized that it was not a result of the fact that he had been seeking God and came to faith, but it was a result of the fact that the Savior had sought him out. The first stanza reads, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. I was not, it was not that I was found, uh, that I found him. No, I was found of thee. And the second stanza continues, "'Twas not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me." The author there confessing what Scripture teaches us, this wonderful truth, loved ones, that we have been sought out and saved by the one who came to seek and to save the lost. And knowing this truth, knowing this truth, is essential to having assurance, having assurance in this life and knowing that the same one who came to seek and save the lost is the one who will also cause us to endure and to persevere to the very end. And secondly, we learn in our text this morning that in order to save his people, in order to save those whom he has chosen before time, our Lord overcomes all barriers. He overcomes all barriers. As we said, it, it wouldn't have been a surprise for some people in Jesus' day to see him talking to Nicodemus. You know, they would have seen the two talking, and they would have said, well, of course they're talking. They're probably talking about theology. You know, one's a rabbi, one's a Pharisee. Uh, they have plenty to talk about. But the fact that Jesus engaged in a conversation with this woman in broad daylight would have been surprising to everyone in his day. Even the disciples were surprised by it. Notice down in verse 27, we read, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her, they didn't have the courage to say, Jesus, what are you doing? Right? Uh, even the Samaritan woman, we read in our text, was surprised by the encounter. She said in verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John, the author of this gospel, gives us a helpful little historical insight. It says there, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So, what uh, barriers then did Jesus willingly cross in order to talk to this woman about the gospel? There are four. There are four barriers that are clearly evident in our text this morning. 
And the first is the barrier of her race. There was the barrier of her race, the fact that she was a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritans were considered inferior by many Jews in Jesus' day. Uh, this is because in the 8th century BC, uh, the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, those 10 tribes of Israel, and deported some of the Israelites who lived there. And in their place, they brought in people from other places to then inhabit the land and to take over the houses and the businesses and to carry on what, what had been already in place. We read about uh, this in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24. The king of Assyria transported groups of people from Babylon, Cutha, Ava, Amath, and Sepharvim, and resettled them in the towns of Samaria, replacing the people of Israel. They took possession of Samaria and lived in its towns. And over time, we know that the new inhabitants began to intermarry with the Jews in that part of Israel. And this was something that God had warned Israel not to do because God did not want his people to adopt the religious practices of the nation around them. And so hundreds of years later, if we fast forward, the Samaritans, as they came to be known, were hated by these Jews who did not intermarry. In fact, in Jesus' day, the Jews hated the Samaritans even more than they despised the pure Gentiles because they regarded these Samaritans as polluting the bloodline that they had from Abraham. And it was for this reason that the Jews often took one of the longer routes around Samaria rather than the direct shorter road through the center of their country. And this leads us to our next barrier that Jesus willingly overcame, not just the barrier of her race, but also the barrier of her religion. Because the religious beliefs of the Samaritan woman at the well, her beliefs were also mixed, and this would present a second barrier for a devout Jew like Jesus and anybody else in Jesus' day who held to the one true God. The religion of the Samaritan was a blend of the worship of Yahweh with the pagan idolatry of the peoples who were settled there. It was syncretism. It was, yes, they would say, we worship Yahweh, the one true God, but we also worship all the other gods that were brought with us when we came and we were commanded to inhabit this new land. We read about their mixed religion in 2 Kings chapter 17, beginning of verse 29. And I'm just going to read selectively from these verses to give you an, uh, an understanding of why there was so much religious tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. We read that these various groups of foreigners also continued to worship their own gods. And town after town where they lived, they placed their idols at the pagan shrines uh, that the people of Samaria had built. Those from Babylon worshipped idols of their god. Those from Kutha worshipped their god, and those from Hamath worshipped their god. 
the Avites worshipped their gods, and the people of Sepharvim even burned their own children as sacrifices to their gods. These new residents worshipped the Lord, but they also appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests to offer sacrifices at their places of worship. And though they worship the Lord, they continue to follow their own gods according to the religious customs of the nations from which they came. You can imagine that all this created a lot of religious tension between the Jews who were trying to hold fast to what God teaches and what we know as the Old Testament and these Samaritans whom they saw as polluting true faith and true worship. And yet, we see in our text, loved ones, that Jesus did not let that stop him from talking to this Samaritan woman. In fact, we see that he sought her out. He seeks and he saves the lost. Third, there was the barrier of her gender. The fact that she was a woman was also a barrier in Jesus' day. Uh, why would this have been a problem? Well, it would have been scandalous in Jesus' day. In fact, a rabbi would tarnish his reputation if he was seen speaking to a woman in public. One author writes, at that time, uh, Jewish rabbis did not even have women as disciples. Women were not allowed to be witnesses in court because the rabbis considered women to be untrustworthy. In fact, there is said to have been a prayer of the Pharisees in which they thanked God that they were not Gentiles by praying, thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile but a Jew, that I am not a slave but I'm free, not a woman but a man. And if we think about this prayer, it's very striking that the Apostle Paul, when he writes in Galatians chapter 3 about the fact that we are one in Christ, he writes that uh, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. How Paul turns that pharisaical prayer and he reveals that in Christ all of those barriers have been removed. So we see in this passage this morning the value that Jesus gave women, something that was not present in his society. Jesus, in fact, we know honored women by asking them to bear witness to him, just like he did this woman, Samaria. He also, we know, called two women, uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, to be the first witnesses of his resurrection. See, unlike his contemporaries, Jesus trusted the witness of women, and he was eager to meet this Samaritan woman at the well because he gladly calls women to faith and discipleship. And fourth and last, there was the barrier of her sin, the barrier of her sin, and this would have posed a great barrier because her sin was not a secret. Her sin was known by all of her neighbors. She had been married five times, and 
we read in our text that she was now living in an adulterous relationship. Uh, this is probably why she came to the well alone that day. Uh, we know from ancient texts that women were more likely to go in groups to draw water, and they usually did so in the cool of the morning or in the cool of the evening, not during uh, noontime when the sun was at its peak and, and scorching. And so it seems that this woman was ostracized by her community because she comes at noon and she comes alone. There is a sense of public shame and of public sin that she is trying to avoid. And this is why it was especially surprising that we read in verse 7, Jesus does what? He asks her for a drink. Loved ones, do you know what that means? It means that Jesus was willing to share whatever vessel she was using to draw water, to, in a sense, drink from the same cup as her. It's absolutely amazing. Even the woman was astonished and said in verse 9, how is it, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, a woman of Samaria? The answer, because he cared for this woman's eternal soul. There was no limit to what Jesus was willing to do to save his people. Even as Paul says, he was willing to humble himself and to take the form of a servant, being veiled in our flesh in order to die a shameful death on the cross. Why? Why, loved ones? Because he cares for our eternal souls. Richard Phillips, he draws a wonderful application for us here. He says, we, like our Lord, have to be willing to cross barriers to reach people for Christ. This does not mean that we should participate in sin. Jesus never did that. But it does mean that we have to reach out to people who would normally never come to church or read the Bible. This woman did not live and belong in the religious community that surrounded Jesus. So Jesus came to her with the gospel. He crossed ethnic and gender and religious barriers to seek her out. We must be willing to do the same on his behalf and in his name. We see this so wonderfully displayed in the early church. The early church with Philip, who in Acts chapter 8 went to Samaria to preach the good news of the resurrection. Where did Philip learn how to do that? He learned it from the Lord Jesus, who was willing to cross barriers that others weren't willing to cross in order to reach people with the good news. Loved ones, we must be willing to do the same. And lastly, we learn from our text about the eternal life that our Lord alone can give. This is the third point in the sermon outline. And it's drawn from verses 10 through 14, where we read, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. 
And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We see in this discussion that Jesus used the metaphor of water at this very moment. He used the metaphor of water to teach this Samaritan woman a deep spiritual truth. And, you know, he used water because it was appropriate, right? They were at a well. She had gone there to draw water. It was a natural connection. But he also used this metaphor because we all know that water is so essential uh, for life. We often don't think about it because we have water seemingly in abundance, right? Coming out of our faucets, we have hoses and filters. And the only time we really start thinking about how precious water is to life is when we're very, very thirsty or when we're experiencing severe drought in Southern California and there's all these news stories about the problem. That's when we're reminded that water is essential for life, something that would have been very much known in this part of the world in Jesus' day because of the fact that it was such an arid land. And so Jesus makes the connection between the water that is essential for physical life and the life that he alone can provide for our eternal souls. He's helping the woman understand that just as water is essential to life, so is the salvation that I alone can give for your eternal soul. And this is why we find this, this beautiful play on words that Jesus uses there in verse 11. He uses the idea of living water. Living water. Now this living water in an earthly sense referred to water that flowed or that's moving. It's fresh. It's living. It's not like a pond that's stagnant or like a swamp. No, living water means that it's moving like a river or like a spring. And so when Jesus said to her, I would have given you living water, she was surprised because she knew the area. She probably knew every water source in the area, and she was, she was thinking, is there a stream or, or a spring somewhere around here that has living water that I don't know about? And she even reflects upon the fact that you know, Jacob, in order to find water, he had to dig a well. There's no living water around here that I know about. And so Jesus very gently very clearly points her to the salvation that he alone provides. He explains that he's not talking about physical water, a water that you drink only to find out later that you're thirsty again and, and so you need more. But he's referring instead to the spiritual life that God alone gives. It's what he means in verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Loved ones, what water is Jesus speaking about? Well, he was speaking here about the Holy Spirit. He was speaking about the life-giving Spirit. And we know that he was speaking about the Spirit because later on in the Gospel of John, in chapter 7, beginning at verse 37, Jesus makes this he says, if anyone thirsts, 
let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow uh, rivers of living water. And then we get the comment. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, whereas yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And what does Jesus do by his Spirit in a person, then, loved ones, as he's speaking here about the life that he grants through his Spirit? What does the Spirit, the spirit do when he enters into a person? And Jesus says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Will grant regeneration and salvation. The loved ones notice that Jesus is not just speaking about life in the future, but he's speaking here also about life now. He's speaking to this woman who was ostracized, who was rejected, who was struggling in her life. And he's saying not only will you have eternal life, you will have abundant life here and now. Jesus is pointing to more than just future life, but joyful life now. And we know that. We know that because of the way that he describes this water welling up, referring to the spirit welling up in a person. Now that word welling up, it's usually used in the New Testament to describe uh, a human person's movements. And it's found... In Acts chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, Acts chapter 3, verse 8, where we read that Peter and John encountered a man at the temple who was there at the temple gate called Beautiful. The man was lame. He could not walk. And so he was at the temple gate begging for money. And we read that as Peter and John came by, this man asked them for money and we read in response that Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. It's the same word that describes this man's movements as leaping. It's the same word that Jesus uses to describe the presence of the Spirit in our lives. This word leaping describes how the Spirit not only gives abundant life in the future, but abundant life, joyful life now. He is saying that when we have the divine spring, it is like a leaping fountain within us. What a picture, loved ones, of joy and of life. You know, there's a there's a wonderful irony in this passage. The irony is, do you remember how the passage began? The passage began with Jesus needing a drink of water. And the woman seemed to be the one in charge, seemed to be the one with all the resources. But we saw very quickly how it was actually the other way around. She was always the one in need. And loved ones, he is the one with all the resources, the greatest resource being his holy, life-giving spirit. Friend, do you know this wondrous gift of God? 
you know the one who gives abundant life? I assure you this morning that there are no barriers that he cannot overcome. There are no limits to his love. We hear the assurance from his word this day that if we ask, he will give us his life-giving spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we uh, thank you that Jesus Christ is a perfect Savior for the worst of us. And for those of us who think we are the best, like Nicodemus did, help us, all of us, the least and the best, to see our true lostness apart from Christ. And grant that we might be found in him like the Samaritan woman and like Zacchaeus, and being found, give us the grace of repentance as we receive Christ with joy and praise and adoration. We pray in his name. Amen.